The following lecture is provided by Biblical Training. The speaker is Dr. Douglas Moo. For more information, go to www.biblicaltraining.org. Words that all are related are used in Galatians that uh, are all relevant to this discussion we're going to have this afternoon. And the verb occurs here for the first time, three times in 2.16. Uh, the noun, as we're going to see at the end of our passage in verse 21, and the adjective once, as you can see. So these three words are very closely related. They come from the same Greek root, and you can see the transliteration here, dikaiao, dikaiosune, dikaios. So 13 altogether, of course, and we're going to uh, talk about that as a concept this afternoon. I'll come back to this matter too, and we'll come to that just in a moment. But let me talk uh, about the rest of uh, the paragraph and see what questions you might have about it first. 15 to 16, justification by faith. Paul introduces this as something important to the situation in Antioch. We've talked about the verse kind of out of its context, but the verse is functioning here, as we've seen, very much as part of Paul's response to Peter in Antioch. Peter separating from the Gentiles in the way you have, refusing to eat meals with them any longer, is wrong because we Jews, just like Gentiles, are justified by faith, not by works of the law. So we have to remember that context. We'll come back to that this afternoon a little bit as well. What Paul does after that fundamental statement in 16, though, is sort of take up some questions related to it. If by seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? No. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Now, there are different ways of understanding this. The verse is not easy. One view, the view that I think is likely, is that sinners is being used by Paul here in a way that is similar to the way he used the word back in verse 15. Same word in the Greek that we saw in 15 with respect to Gentiles. So what I think Paul is saying in verse 17 is something like this. Now, if we Jews are trying to find our relationship with God through Christ that apparently doesn't happen through the law. And if our focus is on Christ entirely and we're ignoring the law, aren't we then just like the Gentiles in terms of being considered sinners because we're not following the law as we should be? His point is that, well, in coming to Christ, the law no longer has the same place for us that it had before. Seems to be the kind of logic of 17 to 18. So if I were to rebuild what I destroyed, if I were to rebuild the law, if I were to, to put the law again in a place of absolutely determining my conduct and my relationship with God, then I would be a lawbreaker indeed, because I would be coming back to that rule. And Peter, you see how Paul is applying this, Peter, you're in a position of doing that. 
you claim to be justified in Christ. We agree on this, verse 16. We Jews have recognized this to be the case. Justification is found in Christ, and it's not by works of the law. Note the antithesis there. If it's by Christ, then it's not by the law. It's not determined in terms of the Torah any longer. So the Torah no longer is playing that kind of role. Peter, you agree with that because you've sought to be justified in Christ. If you now want to try to reestablish the law by not eating with the Gentiles, in effect, uh, you're going to make yourself a lawbreaker. Then you're going to be in the category of the, the sinners, and you will justly be considered wrong for that kind of behavior. So the, the, the point here is that Paul quickly moves from the antithesis, works of the law versus faith in Christ, to the issue of the law. And we've seen that to be characteristic of Galatians. Paul does this constantly because the law is the big issue. It's the Torah that the Judaizers, the agitators, are trying to impose on the Galatian Gentiles. And so when he's talking about these issues, it's always something that comes back to the law. The point is Paul is setting up a kind of antithesis here between Torah and Christ. The agitators are trying to keep those in continuity. Paul says, no, there's a fundamental dividing point that we understand even in terms of our justification before God. So you can understand then why Paul in verses 18 to 19 takes the next next step and says, and remember that, that I, through the law, died to the law that I might live for God. So in other words, he's spelling out this contrast here. Somehow in coming to Christ and being crucified with him, Paul says, I have had to experience some kind of separation from Torah. I've died to it. That is, it no longer constitutes the key authority for me. It no longer is the the kind of contract under which I need to live any longer. Coming to Christ means that that has all changed. So it fills out, in a sense, the logic of verses 17 and 18 with this claim for exclusivity. And finally then in 21, I'm not going to set aside the grace of God. If righteousness could be through the law, Christ died for nothing. Note again the antithesis between Christ and the law. If the law could was successful in securing ultimate righteousness with God, there is no need for Christ. There is no need for God's grace in Christ. So uh, again, uh, what Paul is saying to Peter in the context of Antioch is don't by your behavior implicitly or kind of as an assumption reestablish the law because you recognize Peter. You know better. Uh, You know that your justification is found in Christ alone. And to reestablish the law in the sense you're trying to do it would be to contradict that understanding of things. And to the Galatians, obviously, he's beginning to say at the same time, you Galatians as well then need to understand that these agitators who are trying to reestablish the law in this way, impose it upon you, are also failing to recognize that justification, relationship with God is solely in and through 
Christ. And if you try to bring the law into the situation, then you are implicitly taken away from Christ's work because Christ came to do what the law could not do. Now, anything else before we move into chapter 3? Yeah, Steve. Verse 17, can you maybe cover this, but briefly, what exactly is the phrase, is Christ the minister of sin, is Christ uh, the servant of sin, what is that doing in that verse? Is that simply, because it sounds like he's saying, if we're living the Christian life, then, and then become sinners by returning to law, or am I misunderstanding what, what that verse is? Yeah, it's a it's a good uh, question. See, this verse is a is a tricky verse. I'm not sure I talked about that part of it. To be fair, as I see it, Paul is, is saying something like this. Let me see if I can paraphrase it a bit of a different way. Peter, you and I are now focusing on Christ as the sole source of our justification. Does Christ then promote sin? In other words, if my focus is solely on Christ and in that focus, and this is the key implication Paul's making here. I think this is what we sort of have to read into the verse. If that focus on finding justification in Christ means that I do not follow the law anymore, is Christ then promoting sin? In other words, is Christ one who is actually encouraging me as a Jew to be a sinner like the Gentiles because I'm breaking the law. And Paul's response then is to say, no, that would only be the case if we rebuild the law again. If we continue to view the law as setting a standard for sinfulness. Christ then would be promoting sin. In other words, to be found in Christ and not to be following the uh, outlines of Torah any longer would mean that in following Christ, I am actually committing sin by not following the law. But that only is true if the law is still in place as the key determiner of what sin is. And Paul's whole point is it's not. Okay? But I, I, to me, I find it awesome that he is, that he is incorrectly saying that, that Jesus Christ wants us to be found justified by faith in him. I mean... He's actually making Jesus the agent of this. I mean, I would expect him to say something like that. But if seeking to be justified in Christ, when Jews find ourselves sinners, doesn't that mean that we are promoting sin rather than Christ? It's really, I mean, it's, it's like he is interpreting the whole ministry of Jesus Christ, the whole purpose of him, and then Christ personally saying, be justified by faith. I think, I'm not sure I see it that way, David. I, it, it seems to me he's just using the language of, is Christ then a servant of sin, Christ uh, promoting sin, however we take that. Just as a shorthand for saying, is the exclusivity of Christ for justification then leading me as a Jew to be considered a sinner because I'm not following the law? I don't think so. I don't think that Christ in an active sense, or talk about the teaching of Christ, just the implications of being found in Christ and looking to him exclusively for the source of justification. Well, we have a, up here uh, now a discussion of uh, three and following. So I want to talk about the broad argument. Here we, we now launch into 
wherever we put the dividing line, and again, in my view, there's a transition going on in 2.15 to 21, the kind of central theological argument of the letter. I'm suggesting that it's framed by two exhortation passages that are somewhat parallel, 3, 1 to 6, and 5, 1 to 12. Many of you will know that in the context of biblical scholarship, we like to use the Latin word inclusio to describe this kind of a phenomenon, I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O, inclusio is sort of the technical word that gets thrown around a lot these days for this kind of bracketing arrangement in the presentation of an argument where an author begins in a certain way and then comes back and ends a certain way. Other people call that bookends of the argument. And I think that's, that's exactly what we have here. It is framed by these similar appeal passages where Paul turns pretty directly and very forthrightly to the Galatians, exhorting them, warning them. You have a similar kind of appeal passage right in the middle for 8 to 20. And then in the midst of that, you have two kind of similar, in some ways, theological arguments. Both have to do with Abraham to some degree. So clearly Abraham is a key figure, a key issue in the debate. But again, this is how I think the text sort of lines up here finally in 3.1 to 5.12. Galatians 2 sets up a lot of the points Paul is going to be making here. In chapter 2, Paul has described how at Jerusalem, he and the other apostles got together and agreed fundamentally about the law-free gospel. That law-free gospel was disputed in Antioch with Peter's behavior leading to these problems. Paul then, at the end of the chapter, asserts this law-free gospel, explains it, elaborates it, brings in justification and other things, and uses the language of being crucified with Christ. 220. Now, at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is turning to the Galatian Christians, arguing for the law-free gospel in their context as well, linking it with the crucifixion of Christ again. We're going to see that, that this language of crucifixion comes to play again in 313 and also at the end of the letter in chapter 6, where Paul focuses on the crucifixion as marking a key transition moment in salvation history. To some degree then, the dispute between Paul and the agitators is about how significant the cross really is. That's why Paul brings the cross in in these important ways in the way that he does. For the agitators, they probably hold the view that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was uh, an important thing and that it provides for uh, atonement, uh, forgiveness of sin now can be found in Christ as the atoning sacrifice. But again, they're seeing continuity, that the law continues now and that there is no need to think there's been that kind of a shift in salvation history. For Paul, however, the cross is, is more fundamental than that. It has a, a, a further reaching implications. It transforms all of existence. 
Paul portrayed Christ as crucified. And the language he uses here is pictorial language. I portrayed Christ. I painted a picture of Christ crucified. Paul's emphasizing the, the vividness with which he tried to communicate the crucifixion to the Galatians. Implication, you Galatians are not fully appreciating the significance of the crucifixion of Christ for the issue of the law. Let's look at 3, 1 to 6. Would someone read that passage again? And we'll follow the procedure we've been using. Look at your own versions. Let's isolate differences that you see. 3, 1 to 6. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing the faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing the faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Thanks, Rod. What version was that? ESV. What are differences that you might have noticed? Believing what you heard. Twice, verse 2 and verse 5. Believing what you heard. What do you have, Hugh, there? Uh, I have another. Which is? Um, the new international version I have. Believing what you heard. Oh, believing what you heard is what you have. Yeah. Okay. And Rod, what did you have? What went, and what was the phrase? Hearing with faith. By hearing with faith as opposed to believing what you heard. Quite different, isn't it? Any other options in your versions there? Steve? Verse 3 has, are you now trying to finish by human effort in, in that version, in that Bible? I about seems to be emphasizing you're doing this, whereas the ESV being perfected is, is, is um, or a passive feel to it. Again, read what you have. In that Bible, are you not trying to finish by human effort? Okay. The, the uh, New King James Version says, or by the hearing of faith. The hearing. The hearing of faith. Uh huh. We've got a lot of different options for that phrase. We're reflecting the difficulty again. And, and again, when you compare versions and see that happening, you figure there's something going on here. <laughs> and it's another one of these genitive constructions. I have a question. What was the NIV again? Uh, for what? Uh, to uh, the hearing of faith. By believing, believing what you heard. That's interesting because I'm looking at the Greek and it's, uh, it's the word for hearing. And you being the expert with the NIV, where would they... I mean, I can see how you could equate hearing and believing as far as you know, when you respond to the gospel. You do both. But the actual word, 
So again, a genitive construction in the Greek, and one of the confusing things is that the initial word could mean either the act of hearing or what is heard. That is, the activity of hearing, in a kind of active sense, obviously, or what you hear in terms of a report, let's say, would be what you heard. And Paul uses the word both ways. So that's confusing, and then the genitive's confusing. So you have, again, faith hearing or faith report. So is it faith that is characterized by hearing or hearing characterized by faith or the report about faith or faith in the report? You hear all those options there? And if you understand how they're all coming from that same Greek phrase, so all of those are options and all of those are options the commentators take. You end up with five or six different options for this phrase. So some emphasize the activity of hearing. So uh, what was the ESV? Hearing hearing with faith, okay? There is the emphasis on taking that initial word in the active sense. You are hearing, listening to the message of the gospel, and that hearing is accompanied by faith, hearing by faith. The NIV, on the other hand, is taking that first word more in the sense of a report or what someone has heard, namely by believing what you heard. The report is characterized by faith in the sense that the report is responded to by faith. So there the idea is more is you have heard the gospel proclaimed and responded to that report of the good news by faith. There's another way to take that as well, which is the report that is about faith. And now guess what happens for some? The report about Christ's faithfulness. Okay, you see, if in 2.16, the idea there is the faithfulness of Christ, and that the same word pistis in Greek has that sense, then here also, it might have the meaning, the report about Christ's faithfulness, the preaching of the good news that Jesus has been faithful in providing atonement for our sin. That's another option then, you see. I think Dunn goes that way. Anyone have a note on that? As I recall, that might be James Dunn. No, it's, I don't think it's Dunn's view here. It's Wright's view. I don't think Dunn holds that view here, sorry. So a difficult Greek phrase here, which can go different ways. Ultimately here, I think the ESV rendering is maybe closest to where I would come down. I think there is focus on the activity of hearing. You remember how important that is in the Hebrew OT, using the verb shema, the Hebrew shema, hearing, again and again, hearing, but hearing that is not just listening, hearing in the sense of obedience, hearing in the sense of taking the message in, and responding to it appropriately, a hearing that transforms is the call again and again in the Hebrew OT. And I suspect Paul is reflecting that here. You receive the spirit not by responding to the law, by doing the law. You received the spirit when you came to Christ by this hearing characterized by faith, by 
faithful hearing, by responding to the message you heard uh, with a a deep-seated response characterized by hearing and faith again. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul talks about receiving the Spirit here. Uh, On the one hand, implies how for Paul, receiving the Spirit is so much an important part of becoming a Christian. To become a Christian is to receive the Spirit. To receive the Spirit is to be a Christian. And so these can be just, for Paul, very much juxtaposed together. But it's interesting how he brings the Spirit into the issue here. A bit of a surprise. Did you become Christians by? Did you find yourselves justified by? Did you get saved by? All those different expressions and others Paul could have used, but instead... He talks about how did you receive the Spirit and goes on to talk about in this context working of miracles and things and so forth. In other words, it's as if Paul wants to appeal to something that they have seen and experienced in the community. The Spirit is something that is now marking them as individuals and as a community. And Paul's point is that's how you began. You began with the Spirit are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And here's this this really tricky word, sarks, for the first time, or for the first time in a significant way. Paul used it earlier, but first time in a significant way. The spirit-flesh antithesis is, is an important one in Paul. We're going to talk more about that on Friday when we're looking at chapter five, where that really comes into play very significantly. You like the NET says human effort? I don't like that. I think the uh, 1984 NIV had something like that, and we changed it to flesh in the update because I think flesh is, again, one of these words Paul uses that has a very distinctive technical sense. And while flesh isn't the literal translation of the Greek word, the language of literal just isn't appropriate here at all, it's maybe the best sort of starting point to use the language. And why it's important in Galatians is this. There's kind of a double entendre, a double meaning Paul is probably intending. Are you trying to finish by means of the flesh, meaning both circumcision, you're actually, you know, cutting a piece of your flesh, and the broader concern, again, of human effort, flesh in terms of that which is especially human apart from God. Probably Paul is playing on that word a bit here, trying to get both ideas there. And I think in English, flesh, you have to use flesh to get that then. We talked about this before, and I'll talk about it as we move through the argument here. To me, the rhetorical situation is pretty well touched on here by Paul. It's a matter of how they are finishing, how they are completing, not how they're beginning. To me, this text is as clear as any, and there are others, I think, that that substantiate the point. Galatians, then, is not fundamentally about how a person initially gets right with God. There are implications for that, surely. But it's not the getting in. Nor is it about sanctification per se, how we need to be people becoming like God in holiness. 
It's rather about how a person stays right and ultimately will be declared right in the last day of judgment. The Galatians have begun. They've begun by the Spirit. They've entered into this Christian relationship by faithful hearing. Now the agitators have come in and have suggested, well, that's where you've begun, but now you need to finish. You need to to close out the matter. You need to continue the race you've started by bringing in the law and circumcision. And Paul's point is to say, no, you, you need to finish as you began. As it was faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone at the beginning, so it's faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone as you move through your Christian life and look toward that ultimate decision on the day of judgment. Yeah, Rod? Yes, sir. Uh, Let me point out what the ESV says and then connect that to my question. Sure. It reads, are you now being perfected by the flesh, which reads differently than some of the other ones. And lends itself, I think, to the idea of sanctification. What is the difference between maintaining your relationship and staying in and First of all, the, the ESV is taking a verb here in the Greek that could be either middle or passive. The ESV is taking it as a passive. Most versions take it as a middle, which usually in English gets translated as an active. So that's the difference between are you finishing as opposed to are you being finished or being perfected. It's a question of, again, which way you take a verb that could go either way in English. Sanctification, it seems to me, is talking about the being holy before God, the process, both initial coming to be in relationship with God and being holy people, saints, because we are related to God, but also the progress then in holiness that uh, needs to be going on throughout our lives. Ultimate justification or judgment has to do with status. And it might take into account that sanctification, but it's not the same as it. I take verse 6 to probably belong with verses 1 to 5. Here's another verse that could go either way. Versions go both ways and where they put verse 6. In some ways, it concludes verses 1 to 5. It's hearing a faith that's important, even as was the case for Abraham where belief was central. You see how verse 6 would relate to that. At the same time, verse 6 then introduces Abraham onto the scene, who's going to become a key figure in the argument that moves from here right through the end of the chapter. So again, a verse that, that points both ways. You know, if I had to put it in one paragraph or another, I guess I would probably put it with verses 1 to 5 rather than with verses 7 to 9. So now we are coming again into the heart of Paul's argument where he turns to the question of Abraham. The reason Paul is doing that is twofold. First of all, I think it's pretty clear reading between the lines that these were the terms the agitators were using. They were basically saying to the Galatian Gentiles, look, let me just help you understand 
what God is doing. Let me help you understand what the Old Testament teaches here. The people of God are those people who are related to Abraham. He is the founding father of those who are the people of God. So to to be a child of Abraham means to be among the people of God, to be those who belong to God and who are now in relationship with him and obviously can look forward ultimately to being saved in the last day by him. So to be Abraham's child is sort of a non-negotiable. You have to be Abraham's child. And scripture is very clear about how that happens. Uh, Abraham is circumcised, Genesis 17, and he is told that all his descendants need to be circumcised. And then God ultimately, of course, gives his law to the people of Israel. So if you want to be a child of Abraham and you want to belong to the people of God, uh, your, your faith in Christ is fine, but it has to be supplemented by circumcision and uh, Torah observance. That's, that's the way the history works. That's what God clearly reveals to be the pattern if you read the Old Testament in sequence. So Paul has to meet that argument and, in a sense, argue on their own terms. Of course, the other reason Paul brings in Abraham is, for, is because for him also, Abraham is a key figure in the story of how God's people are being formed. Uh, and he thinks particularly Genesis 15, 6 is a very critical verse because Genesis 15, 6 brings faith and righteousness together. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was uh, considered to have done what God asked for in terms of righteous behavior. So Abraham is a key figure playing a role here. And you can see then how there's a bit of a bracketing arrangement. Three, seven to nine, those who have faith are Abraham's descendants. It's faith that matters. And Paul comes back and makes a similar point then at the end of chapter three, all who are in Christ by faith are Abraham's descendants. So in both cases, there's a general statement made, but one which has a special focus on the um, uh, experience of Abraham and the faith that he showed, applicable particularly to the Gentiles, because that's the key issue here again. And we have to remember that this is where some of the new perspective advocates rightly remind us that that was a critical part of what Paul's doing here. It wasn't just a, a general argument about the importance of faith for righteousness. It was specifically designed to make the point that Gentiles now can be allowed in and should be allowed in by their faith and not by taking upon themselves the law. Now, within that claim about faith and Abraham, in verses 10 through 25, Paul's focus turns to the law because there are obvious reasons for that. Paul is going to be suggesting a different reading of that history. He and the agitators disagree on how to read that history. Paul's focus is going to be on Abraham and faith. And to some extent, the agitators might not disagree with that. The disagreement comes on 
to what degree and in what way the law has to be part of the picture. So it, it, it may very well have been the case that, that both these Jewish Christian missionaries and Paul thought, yeah, you look at Abraham, faith is an incredibly important part of that story and his experience, and that has obvious implications for today. We think faith in Christ is absolutely vital also, but it's where the law comes into play then. Is the law something that is needed to supplement that faith? Always, forever, or not? That's where the debate comes. That's why verses 10 to 25 are so important in Paul's argument here. To put this another way, Paul and the agitators disagree on theology and the practice that results from it. Just giving a broad overview now. The agitators seem to be arguing that the law still holds sway rules God's people. It's still in place as kind of the non-negotiable thing you, you have to respond to. So the law is where God's grace is experienced. Right standing with God has to be worked out in terms of the law. The law still defines sin. And the practice that results from that then is Jewish Christians must not eat with Gentiles, the Antioch episode, and Gentile Christians must observe the law. Paul focuses on a more discontinuous reading here. Christ's cross introduces a significant new stage in salvation history where the law no longer rules God's people. So Jewish Christians do not have to do the law. Peter doesn't need to separate from the Gentiles at meals, nor should Gentile Christians do themselves the law. Now, if I've not confused everybody adequately enough, one more chart here, trying to summarize the different approaches of the agitators and Paul. For the agitators, God's people are defined by Sinai. Yeah, Abraham comes first, but, but Sinai is sort of the climax or the center of things where God gives his people Torah and uses that Torah to form them as his people. So the agitators don't ignore Abraham, but they're giving that experience of law a very central significance in their reading of things. Messiah has now come, and everybody, Gentiles included, have to do the law to belong to God's people. So the agitators ultimately are arguing a kind of syncretism. Yeah, faith is important, but it's faith supplemented by works of the law that leads to righteousness. Paul, number one, sees the Messiah as more significant. Hence, I've used the, the, the caps with Messiah to get this sense of, of Paul viewing Christ's coming as this more decisive and significant and uh, epoch-transforming uh, event. And for Paul then, yeah, the law is something that comes along, but Abraham continues to be more decisive. So you have Abraham and then the law as a something of a parenthesis, and now Messiah has come, meaning that everybody, Jews included, belong to God's people by faith alone, leading to, obviously, Faith in itself is adequate for righteousness.
Now, I've summarized a lot of what Paul's going to be arguing in the next verses, get a kind of overview of uh, the picture here. Let's maybe just pause with this overarching argument for a moment and kind of ask the more practical question here. What does this kind of argument look like translated into contemporary Christian proclamation? I'm just thinking of what uh, Wesley was saying earlier about people growing up in the South and the kind of it's part of the culture to be Christian, uh, that kind of thing. Whereas this uh, puts emphasis on a relationship with Christ and, and his atoning death at the center of that, uh, being the basis for your acceptance with God rather than some kind of cultural. Okay, yeah, that's good. Point that, again, we've made a bit, that 2.16 comes out of that as well. Yeah. I think also uh, it could apply to people that uh, start out by faith but try to bring in Christian disciplines as part of their basis for their continuing the finishing by means of the flesh. Some of those disciplines you're saying could kind of be related to that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. You know, reflections on how this might work out in practice. I guess where I'm, where I'm struggling with this a little bit is I'm, I'm thinking about how in verse 24 it talks about like the law being a tutor, you know, to lead us to Christ. And, and, and so that's actually a positive thing, that's a, that's a good notion, back in Corinthians he says you know, you've had lots of tutors, I'm going to be the father of your faith, so yeah. it's a very positive thing, that the law is, is a good thing to lead us to Christ he isn't just saying, the law is a bad thing we'll have to talk about that verse, about whether that's the right way to view it, but I certainly think we have to be careful about taking Paul's argument too far, in two ways. One, yeah, he continues to have positive things to say about the law. He doesn't view it as evil or wrong or bad. There are some more extreme interpretations of Galatians 3 that take it that way, as we're going to see. Second is, is always the reminder that when we're preaching a passage like Galatians, we have to remember that this is one argument for one particular situation, audience, and purpose. And we made that point yesterday that anytime we're dealing with any text of Scripture, we have to have the broader witness of Scripture in view and not simply so focus on one text that we, we miss the bigger picture entirely. Clearly, in Galatia, Paul is having to say fairly negative things about the law pretty consistently. And he's having to do that because he knows the Galatian Christians are thinking way too positively about the law and making it too prominent and uh, too central in their experience. So Paul has to bring all his weight to bear on one side of the argument to get them back to a balance again. But we would be wrong to read Galatians as kind of the full belief of Paul about the law. It's one part of his understanding. It's an important part of his understanding but it's, it's directed in specific circumstances to the situation we just, again, have to recognize. So I think 
I think that one of the things we need to do is, as preachers of texts, and this is probably applicable to virtually any text, is to make sure at some point in our preaching we are bringing kind of the full Bible witness into view. It might not be the focus of the sermon. The sermon needs to be on the text in front of us. But just to recognize that text is occasional. That is, it's written for a particular occasion, for a particular purpose, and is not going to give us a full orb biblical statement about a matter. We could inadvertently, by sticking to that text alone, give our people the wrong impression and, you know, have them walking out thinking, again, in this case, the law is a really bad thing. That's, again, where we need as preachers to be good biblical theologians, to have a good sense of the whole witness of Scripture so that as we're preaching any single part of Scripture, we can contextualize it in that way. We can put it within that broader framework and not make the mistake again of creating imbalance. That's, a lot, that's what a lot of the false teachers and heretics do. They, they seize uncertain texts convenient to their views, and those are the only texts you ever hear. They fail to put those texts in the broader context. Jim? I'm just going to ask about the, uh, the chart that you have up, talking about Paul's focusing on the discontinuity, and particularly about the practice of the Bible. It, it seems to me that what Paul is really trying to do here is emphasizing the significance of um, Christ and, and what he did, the, the way, the means for both uh, the Jewish and the Gentile Christians. And if you have described the practice a little bit differently, like Jewish Christians don't have to do the law, but Gentile Christians, stronger language, should not do the law. I just wonder if Paul, because of his elevated significance of Christ and the, that being the one unifying thing that they both should come through, wouldn't he use the same, wouldn't he have the same advice for both Jew and Gentile Christians? And if you agree with that, then would he say to Jewish Christians, you should not do the law, or would he say to Gentiles Christians, you don't have to? I think we need to keep the different language because, you know, it gets gets complicated with some theological issues, which I touched on briefly yesterday, talking about Messianic Judaism and their take on things, you know, as we saw, Messianic Judaism, at least the movement defined by this book as Messianic Judaism, is saying Jews who come to faith in Christ must continue to do the law. Gentiles must not. And their, their point is that within the Christian faith, within the community of Christ, there is unity but not uniformity. There is no distinction, but there can still be difference. Now, I think they take it too far, but there is a sense in which because of the Jewish heritage, because of the Old Testament roots of uh, Jewish uh, faith and, of course, the Jewish Christian experience, that, that I think Paul does say, if as faithful Jewish Christians, you want to supplement your faith in Christ by continuing to do the law, not as necessary for salvation, not as in any way supplanting the full and, and complete work of Christ on your behalf. You can continue to work out your faith in the Messiah that way. 
So when he addresses, you know, the weak in Rome, and I think that's sort of the issue there in Romans 14 to 15. He says, yeah, if you want to continue to observe holy days, you can. If you want to you know, avoid eating certain kinds of food, you can do that. If that's a legitimate option. You Gentile Christians should not judge the Jewish Christians for doing that. But Gentile Christians should not take on the law because for them, the law was not given to them. And to do so would be to suggest that the law continues to be kind of in place as a fundamental requirement for the people of God. I think Paul continues to see it as an option for Jewish Christians, but it must not be seen as a requirement. Thanks for the clarification. Is it your understanding that, I'm thinking of the Roman situation uh, specifically, that the Gentiles and the Jews were, were worshiping together in local congregations? It's hard to be sure, but I do have, I do think there were probably mixed congregations in Rome because otherwise I have a hard time understanding something like a Romans 15, uh, 7. Receive each other. So with one voice, you can praise the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Um, to me, that kind of language says believers, Jewish and Gentile, are in the same room worshiping together not in separate house churches doing it. So then they can, they can work out their identity in Christ but still worship together? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think this is a point of application, not of this text. We've gotten off this text a bit, which is okay. But a point of application there that, again, we can have unity in Christ as a single Christian body, a church, while we still have differences. Paul, I mean, Paul could have written in Romans, you know, just separate and worship, worship separately, function separately. I have to say, you know, the situation isn't clear. Some people would probably argue that in Rome you have uh, several house churches, some of which are entirely Gentile Christian, some of which are entirely Jewish Christian. I don't think there's anything that clearly would contradict that scenario. But it is clear that he's telling them that they need to unite. That is clear. Look at Romans 15, 7 there, where he's kind of coming to the climax of his exhortation to both the strong and the weak. Accept one another as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And then, uh, yeah, back in verse 6, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that suggests to me, it doesn't require, but it suggests to me a context in which Jewish and Gentile Christians are worshiping together, not separately. Certainly, in places like the church at Antioch, you have that going on. Particularly in the early days, there was only one house church, I'm sure, as they were, the movement was getting going there. I wanted to ask you about this, you know, it's a unique place and time kind of thinking. So would you attribute this more to the location he was writing it or the time in the early church at which he was writing it that he would write with such strong language at this point? I think it's more the occasion rather than the time. You know, you see Paul writing in different kind of language to different kinds of communities, depending on what the problem is. He can take very different tones. He can be strict, he can be strong, he can be ironic, scathing, sarcastic, warm, enthusiastic, encouraging. 
and I think it, it has really to do more with the occasion rather than that particular time in church history. We'll come back to these matters of application as we go. Let's move into some more specifics now of the argument. Uh, 3, 7 to 9 is a little unit all on its own, I think, introducing this whole issue of Abraham. Again, verse 6 brings Abraham into the picture. Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. Paul does the same thing in Romans 4 where he talks about Abraham. There are a number of parallels, but quite a few differences as well between Galatians 3 and Romans 4. We're, we're in both texts, Paul's dealing extensively with Abraham. Genesis 15, 6 is a really important verse for him. So here he brings Genesis 15, 6 in to make the initial point about faith. Verse 7, those who have faith are the children of Abraham. Abraham believed God, and that sets the pattern. Again, he's making a kind of a thrust against the typical Jewish view here. Well, it's those who are biological descendants who are children of Abraham. And maybe the agitators had been willing to modify that a bit to say, well, yeah, Gentiles can be Abraham's children also, but only on condition of Torah observance, you see. So Paul is emphasizing faith here. Not only faith, however, but also Abraham's inclusiveness. So in verse 8, he goes on to quote another text of Scripture that focuses on the inclusiveness of Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. That's language of the Genesis promise to Abraham, first found in Genesis 12, 3, but then repeated two or three times further on in Genesis as well. So in other words, this is a theme rather than just a single text Paul is quoting here. Paul reads the nations in terms of including the Gentiles, clearly. So not only is faith significant for Abraham, but also Abraham is significant as the one who is ultimately going to include many nations in the blessing of Abraham. So he concludes, verse 9, it's those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I've got the uh, texts here. I mentioned three times you see this idea in Genesis that the nations will be included in the blessing God is promising to Abraham. So Paul is reminding the Galatians and the agitators, you know, that this inclusion of Gentiles goes right back to Abraham and is rooted in the initial promises given to him. The key point is, again, the introduction of faith as the, the vital issue. It's entirely possible that the agitators might have agreed with Paul about ultimately the blessing of Abraham being extended to the Gentiles. That, that was held by a number of Jews in Paul's day. That wasn't all that controversial. But again, the point of controversy came on the basis of how can Gentiles be included? On what basis 
can they be seen to be the people of God? And that's where Paul is beginning with this emphasis on faith that he's going to keep coming back to. Questions on 7 to 9. I guess I haven't really seen the beginning of verse 8 where it says the scripture foresaw. That kind of jumped out at me. It hadn't really jumped out at me. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. You know, this, the idea that this is part of the good news. And we go back to the discussion we had yesterday afternoon. Here, the good news has to do especially with the way in which all the nations will be included. So, you know, it's not just good news that by faith in Jesus, I can be saved. It's a little bit of a broader thing here, isn't it? Uh, the, the good news that God is doing something, promising to do something ultimately, that includes uh, all the nations of the world. Jason, yeah. And definitely also brings Paul into his statement of continuity that the, the gospel, is, this good news has been around for a long time. So there, this continuity we just talked about, there's a big change with the, with the resurrection and crucifixion of Christ, but Exactly right. Yeah, and again, some some scholars I think hear of uh, J. Lewis Martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N, who's written a very important commentary on Galatians, pushes the discontinuity so strongly that it's almost Marcionite. (laughs) In his view, the disjunction with Christ is so strong that the law is perhaps a negative thing to be disposed of, any continuity is lost. So when I talk about discontinuity as I do, yes, in comparison with the agitators, Paul is emphasizing discontinuity, but it's not a total discontinuity by any means. The continuity just is seen in other terms. So uh, good point, Jason. I'm just reflecting on my own experience, but I experienced that. I remember when I was 19 or 20, Coming to the realization, oh, there might be something in the Old Testament. Really? <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I remember that distinct experience in my Christian faith yeah. where the Old Testament might have something of relevance to me. I was only reading the New Testament. Yeah. There are a lot of New Testament Christians around, a lot of Pauline Christians around, a lot of Jesus Christians around. We often have not done a very good job of being whole Bible Christians. No question about that. I remember once I was leading a small group in our church. We were meeting on Wednesday nights and in our home, and I suggested that we might want to do a study of Micah next. And you would thought I was suggesting that we start learning Ugaritic. I mean, what does Micah, who would want to read Micah? What is like, well, that's not part of God's word. Somehow it doesn't fall under the category of scripture that's profitable for teaching, reproof, and so forth. And I, I, I think that attitude is very much... And we preachers sometimes, I think, have to confess we can foster that by the books we choose to preach on sometimes. Thank you for listening to this lecture brought to you by biblicaltraining.org. Feel free to make copies of this lecture to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.biblicaltraining.org. There you will find the finest in evangelical teaching for use in the home and the church. And it is absolutely free. Our curriculum includes classes for new believers, 
lay education classes, and seminary-level classes taught by some of the finest seminary teachers drawn from a wide range of evangelical traditions.